0: So you ever wonder what kind of people get into MIT, or what they do after they graduate? Welcome to this week's episode of Unlimited, also known as Vila Hudud. we brought to you by the MIT Arab Alumni Association. Here, we talk about the different paths Arab students took to get to MIT while they were students, and after graduation, what we hope to uncover is that these paths, quite like the people who took them, are unlimited. I'm your host, Dana Dabusi, Class of 2020, and thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Unlimited. Hello, wa stahla, and welcome back. Today I have the honor of introducing you to the president of the MIT AAA, Mason Mustafa, She is also director at the American University of Kuwait and a great inspiration to all of us at the MIT AAA. So without further ado, here's Mace. Mace currently serves as director at the American University of Kuwait. With a 10-year professional career, uh, she has covered various engineering and management disciplines across multiple jurisdictions, including Canada, the US, and the Middle East. Uh, Mace started off as a structural engineer with a focus on high-performance structures and life cycle analysis. She is now living and working in Kuwait. Thank you for joining us, Mace. Hi, Dana. It's a pleasure to join you. And it's great to be able to introduce the president of the MIT AAA to our listeners over here at Unlimited. It's, I'm very humbled to be part of this podcast. Uh,
1: I think we all get very immersed in our lives and our careers and we forget, like when I heard you read the introduction, I'm like, that's very interesting. You forget to look back at what you've done and
0: it's you, It's a very fast pace of life. Yeah, of course. I, I'm excited to delve into the details of where you've been and, and how you got to where you are right now. To start off, um, can you tell us about the MIT AAA, its mission, uh, why you were interested and how you ended up uh, as president of this great organization?
1: I would be delighted. So basically, the MIT Arab Alumni Association was founded with the vision and mission of bringing MIT to the Arab world, increasing its image, and also bringing that talent of... um, the Arab talent that is rarely exposed to all the research and all the things happening at MIT, bringing them both closer to each other. And uh, so I started uh, my journey with the MIT AAA in 2015. I was a volunteer for their conference uh, in Kuwait. I met the president, uh, Hazem, then, and he urged me to join them. So I joined as their director of conferences uh, for four years, And after being on the board for four years, I realized that um, there are some things that I would also like to, um, like after being there for four years, uh, there was things that I would like to add. There was things that I would like to expose more people in this region for. Honestly, once you go to the conferences, you listen to the webinars, you talk to people in the region, you see there's so much like untapped talent and uh, it's it would be like wonderful to be able to give them that opportunity to go and achieve the potential at uh, MIT so in brief uh, that's me with MIT and uh, then I was voted in as the uh, president for the next uh, for the term of 2020 to 2022 and I'm really looking forward to actually implementing that vision and that mission especially with a wonderful team like members like Hugh Dana and the other board members that uh, honestly are doing it with so much heart and uh, it's a voluntary organization, but still you find people doing it as if it's their own career
0: driven thing to do. Yeah, it's it's great to have your perspectives and your your passion for what you're doing as uh, the leader and and really pushing us forward to go after these uh, different initiatives that we're running so it's it's great uh, to be able to talk to you today and and hear more about your story and how you got to MIT and you know as as the mission of the AAA we want to be able to Uh, show the potential that people have and uh, how they can also end up at MIT someday. Definitely. Honestly, there is no one path
1: to get to MIT, as a lot of people are going to see from the podcast that you're doing. There's many paths. And in the end, honestly, getting to MIT is uh, like our aim is that people, once you get there, You know what you want to do. You know that it's going to open the doors for you. It's a wonderful institution that offers so much if you're looking for it and if you know what you're looking for, too.
0: Let's start at the beginning. Um, Maes, you grew up in Kuwait. Your family is originally both Syrian and Palestinian. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your upbringing? Sure so I grew up
1: in Kuwait we were brought um, so actually I my family is my dad is Syrian my mom is Palestinian and my grandfather from my dad's side was brought to Kuwait he was actually like a consulate an ambassador in South America for Syria. And then he went back to Syria and he was brought here by the royal family to establish the um, literature department at Kuwait University. And so that that's what brought my family wow. to Kuwait. And so we've been here for a while. And so my dad is also Colombian due to all that mix up. So when co- people tell me to define who I am, I'm, I, sometimes I feel it's more comfortable to say citizen of the world because I didn't live in one place. I don't belong to one country and... Uh, Honestly, met so many people from different places, so it's easier to define myself that way. So, yes, I grew up in Kuwait. I grew up in uh, the French system, actually. I went to lycée, and th- then I finished up uh, my studies in Canada. And between, like, I went to, like, some schools in Switzerland and then in Canada, and then ended up at university at uh, McGill. Both my parents are civil engineers, So that was initially uh, why I was interested in civil engineering. But initially, I wanted to be a pediatrician.
0: What got you interested in that?
1: I'm in love with little children, and I love to spend so much time with them. And I used to intern and teach and volunteer and teaching kids. So I was very interested and I loved the sciences. So I was like, oh, it's a wonderful combination. I ended up, uh, honestly, going into civil engineering because of my love of maths and physics. And also, of course, the influence mm-hmm. of the parents. You know how our parents, they wanted to be like a doctor, engineer or a lawyer. Exactly. <laughs> so I went into engineering and I loved it. Honestly, it's McGill was, a beautiful place to be the community is wonderful the people are wonderful the professors um, and you go into civil engineering there's so many different fields There are like there's geotechnical there's environmental there is structural and transportation so there's four different fields of Mm. civil engineering and so you you're in the first two years it's very general then you go into a more depth specialization and it was my professor at McGill that got me Uh, in love with structures. I love the fact that once you do, once you build these structures, they're there and they're there forever their um that they're also there their scale is wonderful and it also it's it highlights a lot of things about the lack of goes back to my heritage whether it's like Palestine and now Syria people being without homes without places of shelter so you know it, it combines a lot of things unconsciously so being able to build to create to um to like that brought it back all into structures and uh, I loved the math and the physics behind it, definitely. And I specialized then and there in structural um, structural analysis in McGill.
0: And how big was uh, actually civil engineering at McGill? Uh, because I know at MIT it's sometimes a, a smaller class than, say, computer science is now. Uh,
1: no, it was a class of two hundred, and we were five girls. Oh
0: wow! Yeah, five oh.
1: girls. <laughs> very interesting. And, you know, especially a girl from the Middle East coming and with a French background a you say background and suddenly going <laughs> to English, I had like an adaptation thing happening there. Um, mm. But it was it was really nice and it was wonderful, especially because Montreal is a French speaking city. So it was a beautiful integration into uh, uh, the Western world from the Arab uh, world. And also like, uh, you know, we're very cocooned in our families. We're very cocooned in uh, the way we live in the Arab uh, world, where we're very sheltered by our parents. Everything's given to us. We're very fortunate. Uh, so once you go out and you have to do everything on your own, it builds character. It's, uh, it's honest, It toughens you up and um, develops your personality. So I think it's a wonderful mm-hmm. thing to do.
0: So uh, while you were in Canada, your your family was still in Kuwait.
1: Yes, my family was still in mm. Kuwait. Yes, yes.
0: Okay.
1: I went. I was sixteen, so I went at a very young age. Oh wow! Okay. Then worked like with on a project with Estelle Lavlan. We built some stuff in Calgary, and then
0: mm.
1: and then I decided to I was decided that I was missing home, and uh, you know, like after four years, uh, four and a half years, you get like very homesick. So I decided to come back for a little and worked in my field, worked in structural analysis and all of that. And during it, honestly, um, I realized that I wanted to learn from the the father of structural analysis, which is professor Jerome Con- uh, Jerome uh, Jerome Connor, <laughs> which is a professor at MIT. like we learned from his books at McGill. He's a person that did his bachelor's, master's, and PhD at MIT and has been there for a really long time, more than 50 or 60 years. And uh, he's a wonderful professor. So he's the person that really pushed me to get there. And so once I got, uh, I wanted to go more in-depth, and I also was had the fascination for high-performance structures, I uh, got to MIT, got into the classes of Professor Jerome, and also got the uh, pleasure of getting introduced to um, a practitioner. His name is um, Paul Paul Casabian. He's also super passionate about structures. So he was a practitioner, and he's also would teach us. Uh, he would teach us classes of how to apply structural analysis. And during that process, too, I got introduced to my thesis professor, Professor John Oschendorf. And uh, so mm. Professor John Ochendorff is is between the civil and building technology department. So this is one of the things that's super fascinating about MIT. It's that com- combination of the different fields so you know, like yeah. the civil department close to the music department, close to the architectural department. Then you have so they, it's actually designed in a way for people to collaborate. Like on our third floor, I thought I think it's the Marines on the the, and the second is the civil engineering. On the first, it's uh, the cu- computer rooms and the classrooms. So it's it's over the years, and it's what's that's what's wonderful about MIT. Everything just meshed in so beautifully, which actually uh, allows us to do inter interdisciplinary um, activity. So I met, I met Professor John Aschendorf, and he was getting into building technology and specifically into life cycle assessment of building materials and sustainability and all of that. And through that, I, I did my research with a building technology and architectural department students and uh, ended up with a thesis in life cycle assessment of building materials. Mm. Yeah, it's very interesting. When wow. I ended up with sustainability and yeah, you know, like that's what's so beautiful about it. You go thinking you want to learn yeah. something, you learn, you evolve and it grows. And honestly, like what's good about it, Dana, the much you like, it's as much as you want, you know, like if you go in and you want to learn more about this, you're going to find the resources, you're going to find the people, you're going to do everything. Like a lot of people are like, oh, you go, it's going to make you, no, nothing is going to make. You make it what you want. Exactly. Like you can go like, you know, there's a lot of wonderful people in this world that didn't go to Ivy League universities, but they've done wonderful from themselves. It's just because it's Mm -hmm. how much you put in, that's how much you get back. We're just like trying to highlight here that maybe there are more resources available at MIT that usually you don't find somewhere else for the STEM uh, like fields. So that brought me to my master's uh, from MIT and then came back. Uh, honestly, no. Worked with Parsons Brinkerhoff. We worked on the uh, on the Boston Logan Airport project. It was a wonderful oh, project, wow. and I loved it. Terminal C and Terminal B. And honestly, I was in love with Boston, in love with everything. So, how long did you stay in Boston after graduating? Two years. Okay. Yeah. So I worked there, enjoyed it for two years. And then after that, it would have been around ten years that I was away from home for a while, Mm. except for a year. (laughs) So at that point, my parents were, you know, and I'm the only girl in my family, so they're like, "Please, Natali, come back. We miss you. We want you home." And you know, there's that Mm. guilt that starts coming in. So ended up resigning and coming back to Kuwait uh, with nothing. Just ended up, you know, like when you pack your bags and you leave. A very <laughs> personality but yalla mm-hmm. so came back and also there's something in me that was like you know what i would love to come back and give back to my society and give back to uh to the middle east that sometimes is very wrongfully seen i was always asked the questions do you live in tents do you go to school on camels I would always like, ask the questions: Do you have electricity? Uh, do you mm. have washrooms? So you know, you feel like there's no that, that's there's that image of the Middle East that's not properly portrayed. So I always, always also had that feeling that I would like to come back to this region and be able to showcase its potential and be one of the people that, you know, yes, we were part of MIT, we were part of the Western society, but we also belong in this world. And it's equally as interesting and as fascinating.
0: And I, I guess being, being a part of a multifaceted person that you are, being a Palestinian and Syrian and living in Kuwait, I, I guess having that perspective of the Arab world in general, um must have uh, wanted you to come back to it and and uh, and and have seen it more than others have seen it as as well definitely you know and like not only that you start longing back for home
1: you start longing back to you want to yeah. build your country again you want to give back to your society you know at a certain point you like you went there like i went to the west i wanted to learn i wanted to learn from mit from mcgill from the people around there from the uh professionals there their experience they've done tremendously wonderful projects and uh You know, like all of these things. And then you come back, you're like, you know what? Why don't we implement this here? Why can't we do that here? Yeah. So came back and was offered a job with Kipco Group. And uh, then and there worked on uh, the design and the uh, implementation. So construction of um, healthcare facilities. And then slowly Mm -hmm. got into um, a school, um, the American United School. And that. so while building the American United School, um, I was then poached by some owners to build the extension of the American University of Kuwait. At that point, um, I had built we I ended up designing building around uh, three buildings for them, three uh, new extensions. And Mm -hmm. after going through that process with them and being on campus with them for the past five years, I grew a certain passion for the educational sector because, you know, like while you're building a project, you're researching, you're wondering when, because when you're in the process of design, you have to go and do your research on the design. So what are the things that are needed? What are the code sure. regulations? So you can actually design accordingly and give the, the people that are going to use the actual the, the building what they need to be able to function. So after five years of university design and construction, and before that school design and construction, I found myself too immersed in education. That slowly got me into becoming a director at the university uh, of the American University of Kuwait.
0: How how did you make that transition, and and did you know that you would be saying goodbye to uh, uh, engineering when you did that? To be very honest, um, it's not a clear cut
1: transition because um, now at the American University, I'm still responsible of all the expansion, the construction. So I still have that little side of engineering that i have where we're still building we're still constructing we're refurbishing old buildings so that's still that side is still available and still there i don't think after a a 10-year career in that it'll be so (laughs) just let it go um especially Mm -hmm. as human beings we tend to stick to what we know but to that was added more of the educational side of it of you know like the continuation of education, especially like with everything that happened with COVID and going online and a lot of things. So to be able to give you like a clear cut of things that happened, it it didn't. But I've added a lot onto my uh, possibility of things to do.
0: What are some of those things? So now basically
1: it's more about, you know, like the... um, finding you know like the continuation of education when you're on the other side of education and you're not like the student or you're not the teacher you're not the faculty it's about the continuation of the facility and the continuation of the um, institution as itself so how can it grow how can it offer more to its students in terms of growth in like programs and possibilities of educational possibilities and stuff and things like let's say doing a collaboration with other other universities for a master's program um, such as like JPal or the Micromasters, and so you try into looking at ways um, into growing the possibilities you can offer the students at the institution and the faculty at the institution. And then at a certain point, I think it all goes back to my initial uh, my initial field of project management. I feel like that's a skill that you learn that you can apply in any any sector you're in. Right. Um, whether you're managing people, you're managing design, you're managing materials, you're managing uh, projects, uh, in the end, I feel it's a certain skill and it's a certain way of controlling budget, controlling timelines, controlling uh, the, the scope and controlling delivery. So in the, in right. from my brief uh, little experience, in the end, I think applying those skills to any different field is what I've also been doing.
0: So so to go back uh, a little bit to something you mentioned earlier about the opportunities that exist when you study abroad, um, the different experiences people have and how that can help you uh, get access to more opportunities. Uh, being someone who is involved with uh, education in the region specifically, I think uh, your comments about coming back and, and improving uh, the state of the region as it is when do you see the region's education being maybe on par with what exists elsewhere or being able to offer those kinds of opportunities to to students as well? To be very honest, um, if you've asked me before corona, I would have told
1: you it would have been at least maybe five, ten years before we can do that. Mm -hmm. Some places such as Um, Abu Dhabi, uh, Bahrain, Qatar have already done collaborations with uh, universities in Europe and they have their branches there, which is also a way of getting the information into this area without actually having people being more uh, like nomads and leaving. But now with Corona, to be very honest with things being a click away, a Zoom link away, um, like you can sit on a lecture at MIT Just by that little simple click, and it's not gonna, Mm. not gonna. You're gonna have the same level of education, but I think what you're gonna lack, what you're gonna lack, is going to be that experience of actually being there, of meeting people from different cultures. Um, I've developed wonderful relationships and uh, with friends uh, from like McGill and MIT that if I would have stayed in this region, I would have never met. The region here is developing an educational sector uh, like on a, how, how are we gonna say on a very uh, quick pace now with Corona. So I think it's we're gonna be reaching there quite uh, soon. And honestly, also you have a lot of talent in the Arab world that if you just at that young age when you're like 18, 19, if they're just given that proper opportunity or that proper proper collaboration, They'd be able to do amazing things. Um, like if you can see, like there's also that, you know, that feeling elite where, where we also have so much here to give and so much here to, to teach and to give back. But we can also learn from them a lot. Um, so right. in terms of the different fields, if you look at the fields of like the arts at the fields of um, culinary, uh, there's a lot of things happening here in the Gulf. A lot of people are going into culinary of arts. So I think maybe the things that are still lacking to get to improve are more of the STEM sector.
0: So on the topic uh, of stem what what are some uh, things that could help us accelerate that transition
1: like i think you know more doing collaborations between the local universities and universities abroad there's already a lot of that where you know they send their students to those universities and retrospectively we get the ones from the other university but i think now it's there's a lot of things available online so I believe maybe having um professors from those regions or getting professionals from those regions to come and show how certain STEM or certain technologies are being implemented, um, I think AUB uh, does a lot of that where they get a lot of their alumni that also teach in the West or work in the West and come back to be able to showcase what they're working on. Uh, they do a lot of uh, web series talks. Also in the US, you know, since from like the age the students reach uh, high school, they introduce them into like the STEM university, STEM um, programs, and they get the students excited about them. So once you get the student excited and you expose him to what's available, So that's what a lot of uh, now startups are doing in uh, Kuwait. Like when you have a lot of people that are coming back from uh, the West that are starting like startups for like Coding and startups for accelerating start uh, for accelerating different businesses, uh, innovation uh, camps, and so all of that I think is going to expose the the new generation to more uh, fields and it's going to expose them to actually what's being what's out there. The problem with I think a lot of yeah. people in the Arab world is we're very limited in what we try to see. You're limited to your surrounding. You're limited to your circle, your parents, their friends their children, if they're older, what have they done, what they have, haven't done. So that's pre-online um, like online or pre-internet. Now everything's in, on the internet, but if you're young and you don't know how to reach it, I think right. that's the, maybe the missing link. And especially when you finish from university, like a lot of us have the opportunity maybe to know what we want to do, but a lot of people or young ones that finish with a generic degree maybe just need a little bit of uh, guidance. So I think getting more experts in the fields in the region and letting them, whether it's going to be just, you know, highlighting specific things or getting them to do workshops, um, I think that will open up a door. It will help set the foundation for putting these fields on the ver- on the educational system in this region. Like, I don't think we have a no. lot of AI fields. I think Dubai is starting off with a little bit, but, and it takes a lot. We have like an alumni, Hania Asfoo, that's started the GD Design School in, um, in Dubai. But, you know, we're still in the verge of doing that. So maybe in the mm. next 10 years, we're, we're like the
0: little child behind running, but hopefully we'll flourish soon. <laughs> And hopefully with, the, with conversations like this and, and the different webinars that we offer, we'll be able to get STEM on people's radars and, and, and get kids interested in, in doing projects like this and, and continuing their education. Definitely,
1: like with the MIT A, that's what we're trying to do. Like when we do webinars and we highlight uh, professors from Arab origins or uh, professionals from Arab origins that are um, now like experts at their fields, we're trying to show the, the young Arab that, you know, it's they're, they're not out of your reach. They're ordinary people um, that have just like worked hard, followed that path. Uh, put in the effort and it's not out of reach for you, you know? Um, so, and especially as you said, if we can, if we highlight different professors and their researches, it would at least, if we reach one or two people, that will, honestly for me is gonna be a success, whatever it is.
0: So, Mace, I remember in a previous call we had, uh, you mentioned how uh, Kuwait had a different response to the COVID pandemic uh, in private schools than it did in public schools. Uh, what was your experience?
1: Uh, honestly, in Kuwait, they strongly believe about education in classrooms and how important it is for the interaction of the student and the teacher. So at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a big restriction into holding online classes because they believed they could hold it off for three to four months and then get the students back in. So, But private universities such as AUK that I'm part of uh, went into the private university council and tried and we we put in and we fought to actually teach online because we told them that even if we get back into classes we're ready to re-offer the classes in person so we can offer it online now and reoffer it in person in case we open up and covid goes away so we got that approval whereas quite university stayed closed for eight months no classes nothing not even the schools nothing was offered online except for private universities
0: Wow, it's great that you were able to fight for uh, the, the school and, and being able to offer it uh, online. And, and I remember you mentioned as well that y- you had some uh, role in digitizing. Was this before or after the COVID pandemic had uh, started?
1: Honestly, the university has been has had it in its ten year plan to digitize, to digitize its univers its whole campus, but everything from Corona just got everything got very on superdrive. So now what we're doing is we're moving everything. We're digitizing. Our role is to digitize the whole campus. So we have like two missions, two initiatives: to digitize the whole campus and also to sus- turn the campus into a sustainable and green campus. So with refurbishing a lot of existing things. So that's Uh, Some of the projects we're working on. And uh, also the university is also working on a SDG report, which is sustainability report. So we're going with the waves of this uh, era, which are sustainability, climate change, digitization. And let's see what happens with
0: that. I like how this ties a little bit back to your uh, experience in your master's at MIT with the life cycle analysis and the the sustainability thinking behind uh, your structural and and design background.
1: Very well put, you know, yes, exactly. Like. I go back to your question of uh, do, you, uh, do you did you give up everything when you became director of ed- educational facilities? So I think you just pointed out very beautifully that, uh, no, I think you you draw back from all your past experiences. And um, I don't know how it does, but just it all comes to serve you at a certain point. So, yeah, I'm actually using a lot of that material. And especially like our, our, a lot of our research was uh, my... Uh, my co-researcher, which is um, Catherine DeWolf, she actually developed it more and added more data, and we were able to give it to Arab. I think then I don't if I'm not mistaken. Mm. So it's very interesting to be able to reuse all of yeah. that. Yeah.
0: So uh, just to touch back on some nostalgia moments from your time at MIT, and so our last question: What is one thing you miss about MIT? I miss the people and
1: I also miss that feeling when you go into MIT, that feeling of, you know what, anything is possible. You can go in with an idea, you'll find somebody like you that would like to even just take a look at it, if it works or if it's not. You know, that
0: risk-free, very easy
1: feeling that you get when you're there.
0: That's uh, totally a a great part of being an MIT student. You have the safety net to try whatever you want and uh, and the encouragement of your friends who, who are doing the same thing as well. Well, uh, thank you so much, Mace, for, for sharing your story with us. I think you've been through uh, an incredible journey. Uh, you've uh, gone on the roads that many of us are, are still considering, whether to, to stay in the region or, or go back to uh, the U.S., how we can uh, help our our communities and and give back and and build our own path i think uh, a lot of people have a lot to learn from uh, our discussion today so thank you for sharing it with us Mace. the pleasure is all mine dana and just one last thing i'd like to touch up
1: like at the end they always say that um education is the base for everything so i feel like if you have that true education you'll be able to pursue whatever you have there's no right path there is uh, just the path you want to make for yourself. I think it's very uh, Hallmark card said, but in the end, you get to that uh, maturity of, uh, of a way of thinking. Thank you so much, Dana.
0: It's a pleasure. That was Mason Mustafa, president of the MIT AAA and director of the American University of Kuwait. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Unlimited. This marks our halfway point of series one, which means we're currently preparing for our next series. So let us know what you liked and didn't like about Unlimited this season. And if you'd like to be featured, we'd love to hear from you. The link is in the bio. So as always, a huge thank you to our podcasting team, Ari and Omar and Ma'moon. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. I'm Dana Busi and see you next week for another episode of Unlimited.